Okay, so um, just want to go back very briefly to the title of As I Lay Dying. As you guys know, the title is taken from uh, the Odyssey book 11, and um, it is um, Agamemnon is, um, has gone to the underworld, and he's, uh, Odysseus has gone to the underworld, and he's talking to Agamemnon, um, who's telling him about the circumstances uh, of his death and his murder by his wife, uh, Clytemnestra. So as I lay dying, the woman with the dog's eye would not close my eyes as I descended into Hades. Um, so this is the original um, inspiring moment in many ways uh, for, for, for Faulkner. And today I'd like to um, talk a little more um, about the whole of modernism and the epic tradition. Um, and obviously we see, we've read enough of As I Lay Dying to know that this is in many ways an epic journey, right? It is a journey, um, very heroic, <laughs> a mock heroic journey uh, to very Eddie. So it, is, it has all the trappings uh, of the epic. It's an epic journey on a small scale. Um, and it's also uh, taking advantage of two epic conventions. Um, we've seen just now that we hear the voice of the dead, and that's a very important epic uh, convention, both in Homer and in Dante. And as we'll see, um, it is also a very important convention in S.L.A. Dine as well, that Faulkner is making very liberal use of. Um, the other um, interesting epic convention that I think is being invoked in S.L.A. Dying is the uncertain boundaries between the human and the non-human. And we have already actually um, seen a little bit of that. So I just want to refresh your memory uh, with something that we discussed last time in terms of the two kinds of speech, right? Last week, we talked about the social dialect on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the words with secrets. Um, and this is one instance of words with secrets coming from Vardaman. Um, so this is Vardaman talking about something in the barn after he has um, beaten uh, Peabody's horses and broken the stake. Um, it is as though the dog were resolving him out of his integrity into an unrelated scattering of components, snuffings and stamping, smells of cooling flesh and ammoniate hair, an illusion of a coordinated whole of splotch high and strong bones within which drench and secret and familiar and is different from my is. Uh, most likely, Vardaman is talking about the horse but as we can see, as, especially as we get closer to the end of that passage, um, this being that is drenched and secret and familiar and is different from my is, Vardaman seems to be talking really more about his brother, Jewel, than about Jewel's horse. Um, and it's really hard to say when the human ends and when the animal begins in that particular passage. So this is um, something that we see both um, in a kind of a small moment like this in As I Lay Dying, but also um, in a very dramatized moment when Fatherman says, my mother is a fish, uh, where obviously a strong analogy is being established between human and non-human. We'll come back to that statement um, on Thursday, but today I'd like to, um, just to go back 
um, a little bit and give you a sense of this very long epic tradition um, behind As I Lay Dying by going back to Homer and Dante. And um, in Homer, I want to talk about two instances. Um, the Cyclops, obviously, um, we don't know if he's fully human. Um, and an even more famous episode is Circe turning humans into animals and then Dante following through with that convention in the Inferno uh, when humans are turned into animals, this punishment. So first of all, Homer in book nine of the Odyssey, uh, Odysseus and his men are trapped inside a cage by the Cyclops. Um, and the way that they try to escape is by blinding the Cyclops, uh, Polyphemus. And so this is a moment that is reproduced by just about all the painters who uh, paint that scene, that episode in, in the Odyssey, is the blinding of the eye. And we know that Cyclops only has one eye, so it's e relatively easy. It's the, only have to do it once. Um, so here's Odysseus blinding the eye um, of the Cyclops. And we can see that um, the Cyclops seems bigger. You know, the main difference seems to be in size and also the amount of hair on him. Uh, but otherwise, he seems, he looks, he's a human form. But we also know that he's different, if only because he's one eye in the center of his forehead. Um, so he's not quite human, but he's close enough. And that is a condition that is especially fascinating to epic authors. Um, so just to give you a couple more images uh, of the Cyclops. Basically, you know, it's the same, same kind of idea. He's much larger, um, has a lot more hair, but otherwise has a recognizable human form. Um, three, all the men trying to um, use that uh, spike to blind the Cyclops. And here is one more image. Um, so it's pretty much, just, there seems to be kind of consensus um, in thinking about Cyclops that he really basically is like us. But what is also interesting is that after his eye has been blinded, um, the Cyclops wants to make sure that when his sheep leave the cage that there wouldn't be humans hiding uh, or going along with them. So he's counting all his sheep as they go out, as they leave the cage, even though he, his cave, even though he can't really see them. Um, and he's surprised that his favorite sheep is the last to go. And he's the last to go because Odysseus is clinging to him. But this is what Cyclops says to his sheep. Sweet cousin Ram, why left behind the rest in the night cave? You never linger so, but graze before them all, and go afar to crop sweet grass, and take your stately way, leading along the streams until at evening you come to be the first one in a foe. <coughs> why now so far behind? Can you be grieving? over your master's eye. So this is um, not only is, um, a sense of kin is there a sense of kinship um, between the Cyclops and his sheep, but this is one of the earliest moments of uh, cross-species identification that Cy the Cyclops obviously is mourning the loss of his eye. Um, and he's imagining, he's projecting that grief onto his sheep and recreating kinship on a different level, not just on a physical level, there's a connection between humans and animals, but also on a psychic level, on an emotional level, there is that kind of kinship. So the Odyssey, I would say, um, is one of the earliest moments of a really interesting kind of cross-species imagination, at least in this one moment. 
Um, so um, the more better known moment, and actually I would argue is less subtle than this, is the transformation of humans um, by uh, Circe. And here's Odysseus going after her because she's transformed one of his men into uh, this animal. Um, so we see many instances of this, um, and this is an amazing um, image, uh, I mean, uh, this kind of vessel um, with all the animals uh, in Circe's house, and I think that we recognize that actually there's a strong Egyptian influence. Um, this image just looks very Egyptian, and there is in fact a constant traffic between uh, Greece, ancient Greece and Egypt. So um, it's part of the, the impetus for thinking about humans and non-humans is coming from is coming from Egypt as well. Um, and here's just to complete our discussion of the epic tradition. Dante is doing the same thing, and I just want to alert you that the snake is very important. Um, the connection between the human and the non-human in the Inferno um, is that Dante's basic punitive philosophy. Um, is that humans get punished by being changed into something that resembles the crime. So thieves, because they're sneaky, and they sneak the way into other people's dwellings and uh, take what belongs to them, um, that thieves are turned into snakes um, in the inferno. So lots of snakes in the inferno, and one more dramatic representation. All of these are by William Blake. Um, so we kind of have a really interesting conjunction of a 19th century author going back to Dante and reproducing these very emblematic moments. Um, so, there, so we have on record a 19th century author, William Blake, being inspired by the epic tradition. And I think the Faulkner is a 20th century instance uh, of uh, a similar kind of inspiration. But as with Faulkner, um, he adds uh, another layer of complexity um, to the epic tradition. And I would say that this is actually one of the most important innovations in As I Lay Dying, um, in many ways more interesting than the epic journey itself, is that humans are rarely identified with just one kind of animal. More often, they are pulled between two ends of a spectrum. Um, they are sometimes identified with one and sometimes identified with the other, and sometimes it's a mixture of the two. So the two characters that I would like to uh, talk about in that context um, uh, first, is first of all Tao um, and then Jewel. Tao is a minor character, but in many ways he's a really good um, example to concentrate on, um, to try to get a sense of the basic narrative strategies um, in Faulkner. So um, I would just like to stop here for a moment and talk about possible paper topics um, when you think uh, of the upcoming long paper, um, is to focus on minor characters. It is counterintuitive um, to use minor characters um, as the main subject of your papers, but actually um, I promise you, especially in the case of Faulkner, you can get wonderful papers by focusing on, focusing on someone like Tao, uh, or even someone like Cora, uh, very uh, unobvious um, entry point, but because they are unobvious entry points, you can actually end up writing really interesting and surprising and compelling papers. Um, so I'll try to give you a, a demonstration today of what could be done by focusing on a minor character like Tao, and then obviously moving on to a more central character, Jewel. 
So I would like to argue um, that Tao is basically identified with two uh, opposing kinds of animal. One is the new, um, the indispensable um, animal uh, among poor whites, the new rather than the horse. Um, and then um, a creature that also makes a, a routine appearance in Faulkner, the buzzard. So first of all, the new and how as new-like. When I look back at my new, it was like he was one of these spy glasses, and I could look at him standing there and see all the broad land, and my house sweated out of it, like it was the more the sweat the broader the land, the more the sweat, the tighter the house, because it would take a tight house for Cora to hold Cora like a jar of milk in the spring. You've got to have a tight jar, or you need a power spring. So if you have a big spring, why then you have the incentive to have tight, well-made jars, because it is your milk, sour or not, because you would rather have milk that was sour than to have milk that won't, because you are a man. I have no idea <laughs> what he's talking about. Um, this is this is really, you know, I think it's maybe it's just the sound of it that Faulkner wants us to um, get the flavor of thoughts that might have been causing through Tao's head. It's just a wonderful moment talking about manhood um, among poor white uh, people who don't have a lot to prove the manhood with, right? No thoughts, no cars, no iPhones, nothing. Um, so very uh, poor equipment with which to prove your manhood. And the only thing that um, Tao can use um, is just his mule. And so he's looking at his mule. And by looking at his mule, somehow his thoughts meander to the most important person in his life, his wife, Cora. Um, and is, that is his claim to Cora. So I won't be able to tell you, you know, the exact logic uh, behind this little bit of reasoning, which is really more emotional reasoning than cerebral reasoning. But it seems that Tao is saying that his claim to Cora, the way that he can keep her, keep her in a tight house, uh, both in his, the physical house, but also in a tight place in his heart and in her heart, um, is by being uh, a very good laborer, by sweating um, and cultivating the land um, and making sure that the more the sweat, the tighter the house, right? So this is the logic that this is the nature of manhood among poor whites, is that it is by the sweat of your brow that you can win the woman's heart. You know, it's nothing fancy, nothing complicated, very simple logic. But of course, it doesn't come out in a simple way in Faulkner. Um, and that really is kind of the defining nature of uh, the existence of very poor rural people um, is that basically you only have one thing um, to prove yourself. And we can see that why on this one thing ends is such an inadequate specimen of masculinity. It's just not a very good workman. Um, so Tao is, by contrast, someone who is 
fully adequate, fully competent, fully impressive specimen of manhood in that particular environment. Um, and he's very proud. You know, this is a very joyful moment. This is one of the great scenes about marriage. And on Thursday, we'll talk about a contrasting scene of a very bad marriage, contrasting with this very happy scene of, 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 of a married couple in Faulkner. Um, but as with Faulkner, mules don't stay happy forever, uh, or humans that are like mules don't stay happy forever. So we're turning to a different meaning of the muse uh, when the journey takes um, both an epic but also a tragic turn when they try to cross the river when the bridge is gone. Um, and the muse as opposed to the pool, um, the, 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 the car across the river, which they know they cannot do. So they're just looking at this impending disaster. Um, and once again, the muse is emblematic of people who know that something terrible is going to happen, but with absolutely no power to stop that from happening. The muse stand, the four quarters already sloped a little, the rums high. They too are breathing now with a deep groaning sound. Looking back once, the gaze sweeps across us with in their eyes a wild, sad, profound, and despairing quality, as though they had already seen in the thick water the shape of the disaster which they could not speak and we could not see. So I think the epic convention uh, is, in fact, the entire ancient Greek tradition is invoked in two ways, both in um, the muse as, in many ways, emblematic of humans, um, but also in the function of the tragic chorus, right? You know, this is a structural feature in Greek tragedy, um, chorus looking on, um, knowing that a catastrophe is about to hit, but with absolutely no ability to prevent its coming. So that's what the muse are doing here. That's the function, that's the epic function within the Saladine. Very much associated with a kind of resigned but resilient attitude um, that we've seen with um, that we've seen in Tao, but in this case, the resignation and the kind of personal bravery, um, that those two qualities aren't really adequate to stopping uh, the, the, the arrival of a catastrophe. So in the next moment, we sort of see what happens to the muse, um, and this is in many ways simply a logical conclusion of uh, what they have already uh, been aware of. Um, this is a completely unsurprising um, ending to the sequence begun by the muse as the tragic chorus. Between two hills, I see the muse once more. They row up out of the water in succession, turning completely over, the lake stiffly extended, as when they had lost contact with the earth. So this is, in many ways, a backward gesture to that earlier happy moment uh, when the muse are fully contended and fully capable of doing what they can do within their own environment. Muse are creatures with feet of clay. That's what's clear in this kind of sequence 
is that because they are creatures with feet of clay, they can only survive when they are on solid earth. And when they are on solid earth, they are very good in making that earth productive and reproductive. Um, so this is really what Tao is talking about. He's a very productive farmer. He's also reproductively happy with Korah. Um, that is the nature, but also the limit of a mule-like existence, is that there are certain lines that mules cannot cross. They cannot transcend their own condition. As creatures with feet of clay, they can only be okay, and it really is no more than that. They can be okay only within one setting. And in this other moment, uh, when they left the customary setting, um, and they're stuck trying to negotiate with a swollen river, um, we know that the muse will not survive in that kind of transformed setting. So in many ways, the perfect analogy for the poor was that they can do relatively well when they're left to their own devices, when they allow simply to stick to the environment. But once they're taken out of that environment, then we know that terrible things are going to happen to them. Um, so in, in, in this particular sequence, um, Tao being associated with the muse, um, he's basically defenseless. Um, he wants just to be allowed to live life according to his own fashion. Um, that really is the basic requirement of the muse, is to be let alone and to be allowed to uh, just to survive as they, as they know how to do. Um, that is a very um, innocuous um, and in many ways a very sad portrait of the poor wives, but basically innocuous. But Faulkner really also has a somewhat different image um, of what a poor white community might amount to. And so he's not just going to give us an image of poor wives as defenseless, but basically non-aggressive, right? These are completely non-aggressive. Um, Faulkner does think that there actually is an element of aggression in a very close-knit community, especially a close-knit community such as the poor white community. And we see that in the next image of the poor whites um, coming from, not surprisingly, from Jew. This is how Jew thinks about his neighbors. And now then others sitting there like buzzards, waiting fanning themselves, every bastard in the country coming in to stare at her. We've talked about hatred as a very important emotion, as a kind of emotional bond within the family. And we now see that hatred is also a very important emotional bond within a small, isolated community. Um, not only does Jew hate someone like Tao because they're always seeing they're watching their every move. Not only does Jew hate Tao, but he also imagines that there is an element of aggression, something that is not quite benign coming from the neighbors. Um, and that is really why he's so suspicious of them and you know so uh, ill disposed towards them on his part. Um, and I the buses actually will appear over and over again. We've already seen them in um, The Sound of the Fury, uh, the buses collecting uh, around the body of the dog Nancy in the ditch. 
uh, and buses that uh, Benji imagines will go and undress his dead grandmother. So buses have already appeared in Faulkner, but in SLA Dying, buses as a physical presence would be quite important, um, and also as a metaphoric presence to talk about what your neighbors might really be like in the hearts, not in the outward behavior, but in the hearts they might be just like buses. And here's an image of buses to explain why a uh, Jew might think that the neighbors are like them. So um, Tao, as I said, is not obviously not the main protagonist in As I Lay Dying, um, but he is an important clue to what Faulkner is trying to do. Because the way Faulkner portrays Jewel, a very important character, is almost exactly analogous to the way he portrays Tao, except that what in Tao is dispersed and sequenced. Um, Tao is sometimes identified with the meal and sometimes identified with the buzzard. We don't actually see him being simultaneously identified with both. Um, what is sequenced and spaced out in Tao would quite often be collapsed together as one in Faulkner's portrayal of Jewel. So in this moment, we actually see Jewel being uh, likened to two animals, not just one, not just his horse, which is the, obviously the main creature um, that he's affiliated with, um, not just the horse, but something else. Come here, sir, Jill says. He moves. Moving that quick, his coat bunching, tongue swirling like so many flames. With tossing mane and tall and rolling eye, the horse makes another sharp, curvetting rush and stops again, feet bunch, watching Jill. Jill walks steadily toward him, his hands at his sides. Save for Jill's legs, they are like figures carved for a tableau savage in the sun. When Jill can almost touch him, the horse stands on his hind legs and slashes mane of hooves as by an illusion of wings among them. Beneath the upreared chest, he moves with the flashing limberness of a snake. For an instant, before the jerk comes into his arms, he sees his whole body, earth-free, horizontal, whipping snake limber, until he finds the horse's nostrils and touches earth again. So many things to say about this moment. The first, and with reference back to the mules and the fact that they are creatures of clay, is that Faulkner is basically making a very deep metaphoric distinction between two kinds of animals. There are animals like the mules who can swim and who can only survive when they are on solid earth. Um, and then there are other creatures, the horse being the main example, um, who actually can leave the earth uh, for a non-trivial length of time um, and be able to survive when they're not touching the earth. So right here we know that Jill is a very different kind of person from Tao. Yes, he is in a white, poor white community. His parents appear to be poor whites. But for some reason, there is something else about Jewel that makes him different. Um, he's more horse-like than mule-like. Um, so this is a kind of a backward reference um, to, to, to another important animal in As I Lay Dying. But 
within the compass of this particular passage, what is really interesting is the simultaneous co-presence of the horse and the snake. And for most of us, the two of them actually really are not that alike. I mean, you know, it's hard to think of, you know, any kind of kinship really between the horse and the snake. Um, they look different and they have very different connotations, um, you know, in our common understanding um, of those two animals. So let's try to see what it is that enables Faulkner um, to bring those two animals together. Well, I mean, we know that the horse is a winged horse. So this is going back to the epic traditions and illusion with wings. This is not just a horse that is um, an earthly creature, uh, but seemingly one of the winged horses of Greek mythology. Um, and certainly the horse is acting uh, like a mythic horse um, in that the motion um, is almost uh, beyond just the physical capability of any earthly creature. Um, so it, it, it is um, the body in motion, but not being registered as body at all, but simply as bodily parts coming into view when suddenly you are seeing that bodily part, but not really the entire horse. And that actually was the way that Vardaman was thinking of the horse as well, right? And the, if we go back um, to that moment, um, in Vardaman's representation um, of the horse in the barn, um, it was as though the dog were resolving him out of his integrity into an unrelated scattering of components, snuffings and stampings, smells of cooling flesh and ammonia air, and so on. So, uh, Vardaman has exactly the same kind of scatter representation. The horse is moving so fast that we're not actually seeing the horse um, as a single integrated being, but simply as different body, bodily parts coming into view um, through the motion. So really it's less about the body, less about the horse's body, than about a kind of very fast, almost transcendent kind of motion. Um, and that is really what um, how Jules horse is represented to us. We don't see him as a horse, we simply see him as something that is in constant motion. But more than that, it is the very ambiguous relation between Jewel and the horse. Um, obviously, Jewel loves his horse. You know, he's done a lot of work to get the horse. It is very much his horse. Um, but it is not exactly an affectionate relation, right? It's, it is a battle between um, two creatures very important to each other. Uh, the horse probably is the most important creature to Jewel, um, but there's no affection there. So what is the feeling, what is the emotional bond between these two things um, if it is not common affection, which is the most ordinary and uh, you know, easily recognizable and recognized human bond um, is not there. What is this other emotion that is there? And it seems that what Faulkner is suggesting is that instead of the common human affection, it is a snake-like quality that is binding Jewel to his horse. Uh, we don't know what emotions snakes have. Um, they're not credited 
and having emotions other than sneakiness, which isn't really an emotion. Um, so we don't actually know what kind of emotional bonds can come from snakes, aggression, or maybe some degree of hatred. But you know, but that is that is a kind of a general general thing. Um, it's not a benign um, feeling, that's for sure. So right now, let's just say that we don't completely understand uh, what is going on here, or why the snake is a very important supplement to the relation between jewel and horse. Um, we're back once again to what we've been talking about earlier, which is the narrative as a secret bearing narrative. Right? This is not social dialect. This is words with secrets. That's what we're seeing right here. Um, and just to highlight how unusual um, this description of Jewel and the horse is, just want to go back very briefly to a contrasting moment in Hemingway, uh, when once again we see a human pair with an animal that is very important to him in, in our time. Um, this is the matador killing the bull. When he started to kill it, it was all in the same rush. The bull looking at him straight in front, hating. The bull charged and Velato charged, and just for a moment they became one. Velato became one with the bull, and then it was over. Um, in this passage in Hemingway, actually the emotion, of, the emotion of hatred is quite important as well. So in an odd way, just like Faulkner, Hemingway is also interested in hatred as a powerful emotional bond. Um, and that really is what enables the bullfight to go on. But it is hatred so clear and so transparent and so ritualistic and so ceremonious that it is also transformed by that ritual into a kind of love, really. So um, in Hemingway, it is very, very clear. It's the clarity of the sentiment that is in the foreground. There's really nothing more to say. The ball and the matador have become one. Hemingway keeps repeating that. Everything is completely clear. And there is no secret whatsoever. By contrast, this is a secretive narrative um, that flaunts its secret in our face. We don't really understand what's going on. And that is the purpose of this kind of narration. So um, just to refresh your memory, we're drawing inspiration from Frank Camus' uh, classic Genesis of Secrecy. And um, the moment where Faulkner is highlighting and dramatizing the existence of a secret is by way of Jules' horse. And this time is a fully dramatized moment in the sense that not only is the horse there, not only is Jewel there, but everyone else is there. So this, the entire tragic chorus, uh, or maybe in this case not completely tragic either, but the entire chorus is there witnessing this dramatic exchange. And it is no longer an exchange between Jewel and the horse, but someone else. Jewel, Ma said, looking at him, I'll give, I'll give, give. Then she began to cry. She cried hard, not hiding her face, standing there in her faded wrapper, looking at him and him on the horse, looking down at her, his face growing cold, a little sick looking. 
until he looked away quick, and Cash came and touched her. You go on to the house, Cash said. This here ground is too wet for you. You go on now. That night, I found Ma sitting beside her bed where he was sleeping in the dark. She cried hard, maybe because she had to cry so quiet, maybe because she felt the same way about tears she did about deceit, hating herself for doing it, hating him because she had to. And then I knew that I knew. I knew that as plain as on the day I knew about Dewey Dow. So this is the moment when the secret is exposed. And it is exposed, of course, without father ever coming close to the very simple nature of that secret. Um, it is completely by way of this detour around Jules' horse. The way we know that there is a secret is that Eddie's response to a horse is nothing like what would have been a normal response to a horse. Sun disappears night after night. You know, people don't know where he goes. Um, and then all of a sudden, he comes back with his horse. Um, an unheard of possession among poor whites. Mules would be the standard animals to have for poor whites. A horse is not at all the thing to have or that anyone could have. So um, this is uh, a possession um, that is inappropriate for poor whites. Um, Vardaman's response is what would have been an ordinary, uh, completely understandable response, is let me ride a horse. So Vardaman is reacting as anyone would react. Annie's response is by crying, um, which I guess is, could still have been normal, except that the response then from Jewel is that his face is growing cold. And then he's looking at her, and the more he looks at her, the more sick looking he becomes. So that is not in the script at all. If the horse had been anything but a good event, right? If the horse had simply been a joyous acquisition, none of this would have happened. So what is it that transforms a joyous acquisition into something that people can either cry about or be very uneasy about, or something that requires some degree of comforting, which is what Cash seems to be doing. Here is this proud mother, um, and Eddie ought to be a proud mother. And instead, Cash is talking to her as if something terrible had happened to her. Go on back to the house. Go on now. The ground is too wet for you. The solicitude coming from Cash is also inexplicable. So we can say that from every single person, the overreaction of Addie, the crying, the sick-looking expression on Jude's face, the over-solicitude coming from Cash, all of those things are things that should not be in the script, but surprisingly are in the script. And then we know that there really is something that could be named, that could be identified and named. And even though um, Dao is not going to name it for us. 
he comes as close as he can to saying that word. Uh, so the way he tells us is that I knew that as plain on that day as I knew about Dewey Tell. So right here, we see a kind of backward reproduction um, in terms of Faulkner's characterization. We know about Dewey Dell's pregnancy of wedlock first, right? And this is the thing that Dow knows about is transparent secret. It is Dewey Dell's out of wedlock pregnancy that is being reproduced in her mother. This is the kind of interesting backward reproduction, like mother, like daughter. Um, and in this case, we know about the daughter's condition first. And it's because that is exactly the same reaction now and exactly the same degree of knowledge now that we know that, in fact, what Dewey Dell is doing now has been done once before in the family by her mother. So a lot of things are hanging together. The fact that Jewel has a very different height that can be explained. The fact that Jewel can acquire a horse when nobody else in a poor white community, that can be explained as well. A lot of things are falling into place with a, sus a suspicion that's not just sneaking up on us. And I think that this is really why the snake is so important to Faulkner, is that a discovery is sneaking up on us. It is sneaking up on everyone else. This is a snake that is not um, like the snake in, in, in Dante, a snake that takes um, the possession of someone else, although there's an element of this as well, but a snake that insinuates itself into our consciousness and imports to us a degree of knowledge or a kind of knowledge that maybe we would prefer not to have. So this is really the very early snake, the snake that is the bearer of knowledge coming to Adam and Eve um, that, that is being invoked here. Um, and it's just to clinch the case, just to make everything very, very clear, um, Faulkner now resorts to another epic convention, um, bringing Eddie back to life so that she actually gets to say something. Um, and there is no other explanation um, other than the license, the poetic license, afforded by the epic form that would allow for uh, a completely non-realistic representation of the voice of a dead person in an otherwise realistic novel. Uh, but that is the poetic <coughs> license that Faulkner is taking. So in a very, very strange moment, basically at the very heart of SLA dying, we see the voice of Eddie addressing us and talking about a past moment in her life. I would think of sin as I would think of the clothes we both wore in the world's face of the circumspection necessary, because he was he and I was I. The sin, the more other and terrible, since he was the instrument ordained by God who created the sin, to sanctify that sin he had created. While I waited for him, in the woods, waiting for him because he saw me before he saw me, I would think of him as dressed in sin, he the more beautiful, since the garment which he had exchanged for sin was sanctified. Um, it's um, and 
the confession, I guess, as close to a confession um, as we can get about the paternity of Jewel. Uh, but that confession about the paternity of Jewel is characteristically couched in terms of a strange kind of satisfaction um, that Eddie gets from this particular kind of affair, which is that the garment that her partner in sin has exchanged for that sin is actually all the more beautiful because it is sanctified by God. So that tells us who the father is, right? Um, and uh, father is being tongue-in-cheek here. The father, we figure out, is probably Whitfield. He's the only likely candidate. There's really no one else in that small community who could be the father. So there could only be one. Uh, but um, it turns out that Faulkner actually has taken his name uh, from a historic figure, uh, a very influential preacher, um, 18th century preacher, Benjamin Franklin, um, said that when he uh, would go to hear Whitfield, he would make sure that he would have uh, very little money on his person because he just know that he would empty out his pockets uh, when, he, when, when, when Whitfield goes around and, and asks for donations. And sure enough, um, even though he takes very little money with him, he always walks away with empty pockets after Whitfield is done. So that's a very powerful uh, one of the most famous uh, preachers of the 18th century. Um, and Faulkner has recreated this preacher, uh, but with a twist, in SLA dying, and this is his Whitfield. It was his hand that bore me safely above the flood, that fended me from the dangers of the waters. My horse was frightened, and my own heart failed me as the logs and the uprooted trees bore down upon my littleness, but not my soul. I knew then that forgiveness was mine, the flood, the danger, the hind, and as I rode on across the firm earth. So um, the Bundrans are unable to cross the swollen river. The mules drown in the river. One person is able to cross the river because his horse is able to cross the river. Um, so this is the genealogy of the horse, both as horse and obviously also as snake as well. The full spectrum of meanings of the creature snake um, uh, revealed to us in pieces. And that is really the nature of the narrative, right? That we don't actually get the whole creature all at once we see different bodily parts coming to view with the motion of this creature. And uh, with this um, established, finally established kinship between Jules' horse and Whitfield's horse, um, in this case, a very well-behaved horse, not at all like the wild horse of Jules, which also explains why um, Whitfield is a minister uh, whereas uh, Jew is nothing like that. Um, so it's the wildness in the offspring that actually backward reproduces the mostly law-abiding but not completely law-abiding identity of the father. Um, and just to add to that, um, here is Tao observing everything. And this is the clearest indication that the animal for Whitfield 
is also the horse. On the horse, he rode up to Armstead and came back on the horse. It's almost too heavy-handed um, to emphasize this detail over and over again. And it would have been completely uncalled for, except for the fact that we really need to have a narrative genealogy for Jewel. And it is a narrative genealogy that is told, actually, not through, not only through a human story, not only through the monologue of 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 of, um, of Eddie um, in this epic convention uh, of the dead speaking, uh, but it's also told a parallel epic convention of a human story threaded through another human creature.